Welcome back to the Black Letter Podcast. We set out to create an entertaining and exciting podcast about law and business, and I think we've done it. Black Letter, the name, comes from the Gothic typeset that was originally used in the Gutenberg Press. Over time, Black Letter became the only font that English law books were printed in. Everything else was printed in regular type. It made it harder for kind of the common person to understand what the English law books said. Black Letter came to represent something that was law, that was set in stone, that was sort of old and a well-settled fundamental principle of law. We're here to demystify Black Letter law. We're here to demystify things that happen in business and law and where those two meet. And I hope you have fun listening. Welcome to another episode of the Black Letter Podcast. Thanks for joining us, all of the listeners and some of you few viewers out there who subscribe to our YouTube channel. Today with me, I've got a return guest, Scott Harris. Scott, along with his wife, Becky, are the founders, owners, engineers, distillers, sometimes lawyers even, uh, for Catoctin Creek Distilling, a distillery that does whiskey, gin, uh, and, um, and rye, I guess, really, is their, their yeah, premier product and other stuff. So I'm going to let Scott talk about Scott's product. So Scott was on our show about a year and a half ago, maybe almost two years before the pandemic. And here's what we're going to talk about today that's cool. First, we're going to talk about Scott is now, during the pandemic, gotten a round of investment. He's tripling his capacity to produce these lovely beverages that I have partaken of so many times during this pandemic. Mm -hmm. And he also, during this pandemic, converted part of his production from booze, which I know is a vital part of our economy, but to hand sanitizer. And so a lot of you've heard about that. It's it's happening all over, it happened all over the country. But what you don't hear is that the FDA regulates that and they kind of swooped in and said, hey, you're not approved. And Scott and his really his wife Becky were a big part of changing that for distillers all over the country to allow them to make hand sanitizer. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it to Scott. Scott, tell us about Catoctin Creek a little bit and what's happened in the last year and how you, how did you guys grow? Like it's a pandemic. What happened? Yeah, thank you. Um, nice to be back on the show. I would say that, uh, well, first of all, about the company, for anybody that's not familiar with Catoctin Creek, we are a 12-year-old um, rye whiskey distillery located in Percival, Virginia. So we're about the northernmost distillery that you can get in Virginia before you pass into uh, Maryland. We've been making this traditional style of Virginia rye whiskey now and selling it nationwide and internationally as well. So we're now distributing, depending on the readership of your or the viewership of your podcast, you know, we are um, distributed now in 27 states. So, you know, Kansas, St. Louis, Chicago, Seattle, San Francisco, Las Vegas. I, I started... I said states, and then I started listing cities, but <laughs> you guys get the point. You um, know so, where those cities are. Yeah, yeah, yeah And right? I saw, Scott, you're in the UK, too, so I know that yeah. we have some listeners in the UK. Awesome. We're actually, you know, in, in Greece, we have listeners, but I had to wow. distribute there. Yeah, we distributed in about five countries in the EU, and uh, the UK, um, and of course, Brexit, COVID, and tariffs, all three of those actually really flummoxed our plans, and and persistence was over in the end um, and we were able to to get into the UK market this year and are having quite a nice initial launch over there. So that's that's pretty cool and all of it is you know basically selling this wonderful Virginia rye whiskey, our roundstone rye, which is a, a traditional style of distillation 
made from Virginia grains that basically presents to the customer a type of rye whiskey that would have been common in the 1700s, 1800s. So that's what we, we enjoy making and bringing that out and doing that. We also make some brandy and some gin and some other products, but the rye whiskey is what we're known for. So, so Scott, can I ask you, so the, the massive success, and I, I just will say it's pretty much an unqualified success, this rye whiskey in all the states, because I know from working with you and working with a ton of other brewers, distillers, wineries, it's hard to go outside of your region, to go beyond the yeah. tasting room, beyond the, you know, three county or state even, and you've done yeah. it really successfully, 27 states, five places in the EU, that's rare. What made you successful in that regard? First and foremost, the rye has to be, the juice has to be impeccable, right? There has to be a reason. You can't just sell gross stuff and have it be successful. Right. So, you know, having a good product, but that alone isn't it. It's it's also, you know, it's got to be packaged well and the branding and, and all these things have to roll together. And I'll be quite honest, you know, we've learned along the way, like, you know, we weren't beverage marketing experts when we started this company. We were co- government contractors and things like that. And so, um, you know, we, we made some mistakes and learned from those mistakes, but I would say what's, what's helped us the most in the past, say half a decade, five years or so has been the realization that we have something very special here in Virginia and marketing our product as a Virginia rye whiskey, you know? And so people in, for instance, Germany or, or London or whatever, they understand the history of Virginia, right? You talk about George Washington, you talk about the colonies. And you talk about, you know, the rolling hills and um, and suddenly you put people into a picture in their mind of a place. And that place is where we get this whiskey from. And so all that together, selling a Virginia rye whiskey um, starts to, to come together for them in much the same way that it's kind of taken for granted now that somebody would say Kentucky bourbon. Right. right. Without even thinking about it, you think about, you know, horse races and, and all that kind of bluegrass and all that kind of stuff. And we're doing the same thing now with Virginia marketing and, and sort of leveraging that. and telling that story. So you're exporting the Virginia mystique and all of the history of Virginia in a bottle, kind of like Scotland, I think, does it with like Macallan or Laphroaig. It's the same thing. Or French wine, you know, and things like that. So yeah, absolutely that. And and we kind of came to that realization. Actually, it was after a trip to Bordeaux. I was on a business trip doing a whiskey show in Bordeaux, believe it or not. On a side trip, one day we went out and visited all these little wineries and we were kind of at an inflection point in our business at that time. Like, what do we want to be? How do we want to grow this? Do we want to take it internationally? And right. Tons of questions, because like you said, you know, being local is a lot easier. And we decided that we did, but I was inspired by these wineries, you know, that were like sixth generation family run wineries, right? And the really small production, they don't produce, you know, millions of bottles a year and you're lucky to get it, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. So producing right. something that's really special and scarce and takes time to make. And so that's the model that we've been using for our business. So, so Scott, so from a business perspective, I love the branding, the mystique, exporting Virginia, all of that's fantastic. But I will tell you that a distiller listening to this or a potential future distiller, or even a lawyer who's advising their client, we have a lot of law listeners, their question, and I've heard this, is, well, how do I get those distribution contracts? I've packaged mystique, the mystique of, Vermont or Maryland or Virginia or Wisconsin, whatever the, I've packaged my local stuff. I think I've done that, but how do I find that, that ability to go beyond my regional? What's that? What's the thing that makes you go just beyond the region? (laughs) That is not an easy question to answer. Distribution is That's why I ask. Yeah. (laughs) 
distribution is so, so, so hard. And I will be honest, I think that we were able to get some distribution in the early days because it was the early days. So competition was much less. When we started, there were six distilleries in Virginia. And today there's over 70, you know, so just in Virginia. Nationally, when we started, there were probably 200 craft distillers in the nation. And now there's over 2000. So tenfold increase in 10 years, you know, and quite frankly, a lot of the distributors are full, like they, they, they're not interested. And there's been a lot of consolidation, which makes those distributors bigger, right? Which means they don't want more products to sell. They want less. And frankly, distributors have been kicking brands out of their book, you know, so they might've even taken some brands on and said, you know what, you guys are not doing as much as we want you to do. And so Ah. later, Um, so it's reaching a saturation point. So a lot of it you attribute to your early entry. So say there's somebody today what advice would you give them today if they're just, say they've been a distillery or they're about to be or, or whatever, even a brewery? Yeah. I mean, is it impossible? Should they just say, well, we got to stay regional. Scott's it's saturated. I, I do think the smartest business approach for getting started is to do a regional based business, right? Like a right. local pub room, a local tasting room, things like that. And mm-hmm. I think that model, you can... You could be completely successful for the rest of your lifetime with that model alone. If you are successful with that and you start to get some kind of that golden buzz about your product, then you can say, well, let's dip it into two or three neighboring states and see how that goes, right? And then you can grow that from there. And that's kind of what we did. We just did that 10 years ago when it was a lot easier to do that. Definitely, I think the key to success for today's distillers, today's brewers and whatnot is um, to have that great local experience. And I think what that means is you're spending a lot more money on events and a big, you know, space like you've probably seen Bear Chase and yep. you know, some of that yep. stuff. And they're a client. Yeah. yeah. And, and so you're you're doing a lot of other things that Bear Chase, like selling pizza and pretzels and stuff that don't right. really have a thing to do with the beer, but you have to do that to be successful in that. Oh, they're selling their location there, right? They're selling that mountaintop. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And they're turning people away by the thousands because they can't fit them, which is, which is a good problem to have. Right. So Scott, so if I had to summarize for our viewers, and then I want to talk about hand sanitizer a little yeah. bit, as exciting as that is. So for our, for our viewers, listeners, if you were giving advice today, you would say you've got to package the mystique of where you are. You've got to think about the saturation of the market right now and build your brand from the ground up from a regional tasting room successfully before you move forward and and dip your toe in to see where you are. So those are kind that's the kind of the, that's the distillery advice of the day. Absolutely. Um, As long as we've been around for, for 12 plus years, and I think we're, we've been pretty successful. We still have distributors who won't even return our calls. Yeah. It's, and if you're a nobody coming from nowhere, forget it. They'll never. I, I've heard that. We have a national client uh, and they're owned by former high ups from E&J. And the only reason they said they're national is because they're in the system. Yep. And I understand it's very much that way. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so that, so I've heard that from both sides. Uh, so let's talk about hand sanitizer. So mm-hmm. the pandemic comes along, you guys are cranking, making whiskey and all rye and, and gin and, and brandy. And you're like, oh crap. We got to keep making this stuff and selling it because people are getting just as drunk as they were before, if not more, because you guys have grown. What made you think, well, we should make hand sanitizer? And what happened with the FDA swooping in and saying, oh my gosh, you're helping everybody. Don't do that because yeah. there's a law. So, well, what's so that story? When COVID first started, 
it's amazing to me, you know, we were seeing in January, February, like news reports from China and things like that. Right. But nobody was panicked yet. Right. Right. And then within a period of like two weeks in March, like all hell broke loose. Right. Everything started shutting down and everybody started wearing masks. And like it happened like almost overnight. It felt like in that time frame, um, you know, and the hospital cases are rising all of a sudden alarmingly and all that kind of stuff. We were at a point at that time where we had like drums of waste alcohol that we would normally just send to a recycler. And it's basically alcohol that gets used for cleaning, you know, like car parts at a, at a mechanic or something like that. Is that and, the head? Is that right? Yeah, it's the heads. That's right. Yep. And so we had drums of that stuff sitting around and we were like, well, you can't drink it, but you can sure as heck clean and sterilize your hands with it and your countertops and things like that. So we started immediately giving that stuff away. You know, in the early days, like there was no packaging. It was BYOB, bring your own bottle, right? I was filling Gatorade bottles. And then we realized, you know, FDA wise, we needed to put a sticker on it that says non-potable, don't drink it, you know, right. poison, whatever. Um, so we started doing that. And I mean, I had nursing homes, wastewater treatment facilities, all the sheriff's deputies, you know, EMTs, all these people showing up at our door with plastic jugs, you know, to fill them up. Right. Because you couldn't buy it. Right. It right. wasn't it, it like wasn't, the stores were out. Right. Because you remember yeah. the toilet paper shortage. Well, there was also the Purell shortage. Like there was yeah. no the supply chains couldn't keep up with the instant surge. And so the, the one part when I was going to correct you was in the early days. Revenue for alcohol, our, our drinking alcohol went to zero. Wow. So we didn't have revenue from alcohol. And so the hand sanitizer actually filled that gap. So as my background as a government contractor, I knew how to get onto the government websites, the procurement websites, right. and register our company as a provider of hand sanitizer. So Becky ordered, Becky, my wife, who's the president of our company and our chief distiller, she ordered like 2,000 gallons of, of ethanol that we couldn't make fast enough to serve that market. We were able to get bulk ethanol because we already had the licenses in place wow. and all of that stuff. So we could just overnight, you know, get a shipment of 2000 gallons of, of pure ethanol. And Becky had gotten the recipe from the WHO. So the WHO formula, if you use that formula exactly, then you could get that approved by the FDA without having to go through trials and all right. that had already been developed. And so, you know, that formula was like, ethanol plus uh, denaturant, which was like, um, you know, isopropyl alcohol, plus some glycerin, plus some hydrogen peroxide to kill bacteria spores. It was basically a formula, right? A recipe. And we started making that stuff, you know? And so we were getting in chemicals that we never worked with before. You know, this hydrogen peroxide is volatile, you know, it can right. cause reactions. Um, the isopropyl is poisonous. So you don't want to mix that up with something else in your system. And the glycerin, oh my God, the glycerin is so heavy and so slippery. And it's like dealing with snot. Like it was just so difficult to work with. And so we had all these strange things that we're mixing together. And because we're at high alcohol, we had to like put a static discharge system in the distillery so that nobody would set off sparks by their cell phones. Wow. Okay. So, you know, flammability was an issue. The benefit of that was that we were then able to sell sanitizer to places, big industrial customers like the Virginia Department of Health or the Valley Medical System, which was the hospital system in uh, Winchester. Like I said, just about every wastewater treatment plant within 100 miles, um, sheriffs and nurses and nursing homes and all of these places started to, to procure our, our sanitizer 
we were able in doing so to not have to lay off any employees. So I, I was able to say, you know, my salespeople who would normally be going into a restaurant saying, hey, you want to buy our whiskey? Well, no restaurant at that time. Right. They, they didn't they know if to survive. Yeah. Right. And so they basically were able to, I was able to say, look, I don't want you out there on the streets doing that because nobody wants to see you anyway. And, and they all came in, they masked up and they were bottling by hand. My whole team, I was so proud of them. All of my employees were here every day. It was like boot camp, you know, and hand bottling this stuff because we couldn't run it through our equipment because it's poisonous. Did yeah. you need a whole new set of equipment to do this then? No, we did it by hand. Everything oh. was done by hand. So oh, we so you just were like a witch's brew of, yep. you know, we wow. By hand and we had little canisters and we were bottling these up. And so it was interesting because at that time when the supply chains were all going haywire, it was very difficult to get bottles. And so, you know, like a nice little Purell bottle that's plastic and has a little cap and all that, you couldn't get any of those. Wow. So we were bottling it in our whiskey bottles with labels that said, this is hand sanitizer, don't drink it, you know, and it had the WHO formula on there and everything. And then we found some little squeeze bottles at one point and we had, you know, all these different bottles, but we were like trying to figure out basically how to do it. Uh, we ended up selling most of it in half gallon milk jugs. So the big story here, Scott, is not just that you did something good, but you were able to save your business by shifting. So we've heard, uh, you know, other stories of restaurants that are like, we're going to do takeout and restaurants have had to shift much more slowly, but it sounds like you literally pivoted within a couple of weeks and kept your business yeah. open, changing from one product to a completely different product. Now I understand. So that's an amazing story. I love that. The kind of flexibility I see over and over when businesses on this podcast flex like that, they're successful. And so fantastic. Right. So Becky, I understand though, was involved nationally with getting the FDA to, to approve this, this change, this WHO. Uh, yeah. So Becky was part of the American Craft Spirits Association. So that's the National Association of Small Craft Distillers. And, oh, and let me just pop in. Sorry. Becky is the other co-manager, the president of Catoctin Creek. And right. Becky and I are, are the founders of Catoctin Creek. Becky is the president and the chief distiller. That's right. And your wife. And my wife. Yes. And your still, wife. Still. That's probably more important. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Becky basically at the time was on like the committee to deal with hand sanitizer. And so she basically took it upon herself to start interacting directly with the FDA. Like, how do we do an emergency measure to, to, to get this approval through the system so that all these craft distillers across the nation, right? So you think about it, there's no hand sanitizer anywhere in the nation. Right. But if you have a distributed model of every town has a distiller in it who can make it, then you solve a problem for those local health communities, right? Wow. And you so solve two problems, right? You're keeping them in business. And you're and fulfilling a, a human need, saving lives, literally right? saving lives. I would literally come into the distillery, you know, excited to see all of my people bottling this hand sanitizer. And I would just shout out, you know, we're saving lives, you guys. This is amazing. You know, it was really, you know, goosebump kind of stuff. Yeah, it feels um, good. So what Becky did basically in interacting with the FDA was get an agreement with the FDA that if we were to follow the WHO recipe to the letter, right, you can't even add like lavender oil in it to make it smell good. If you follow that recipe, then you won't have to go through the trials process. And so then what we did is we, we went through the process of how does a distillery who's normally regulated by the TTB, which is Department of Treasury, then get regulated by the FDA because FDA. you have to get registered and regulated. You can't just sell hand sanitizer without, it's, it's considered a drug. 
And right. so you have to go through that process. So then we went through what's that process. And, and I'll have to say, it's an onerous process to get registered. It's not easy. There's many steps and you have to do it exactly right. And you're, you're questioning, what do I put in these different boxes on this form? And so we went through that process and then basically documented it into a how-to and then published through the ACSA, published that out to all the members so everybody could go through and get registered. So we had 300 some odd distilleries across the nation register with the FDA all at once so that they were all putting out licensed proper hand wow. sanitizer for everybody. And the, the coda to that story. So then, of course, we successfully got everybody out there, you know, making, donating, selling hand sanitizer. And then at the end of it, um, right towards the end of the year, the FDA sent out very surprisingly a notice that said, hey, congratulations for thank you for saving the world. And for that, we're going to calculate a fee and everybody has to pay us uh, sixteen to $30,000 for the right to make hand sanitizer. And everybody was like, are you kidding me? And uh, basically what the FDA had done, what they'd always done is they would have the number of subscribers of their services, you know, the, the service that the FDA provides, and they would divide by the number of subscribers, the amount of fees that it costs them on the bureaucracy. And so if a company like Anheuser-Busch gets a, a check or a bill for 16 grand, it's no big deal. But a, a small craft distiller who basically donated all of their hand sanitizer anyway, they come out of business. And so one more time, Becky had to uh, get on the phone with the deputy for Alex Azar at the time um, in Health and Human Services. And she basically, on on New Year's Eve, got them to drop that uh, fee wow. and say that all the people who did hand sanitizer, it was for the common good. And therefore, they won't be charged these fees for that, um, which was really life-saving to a lot of distillers. So, yeah, she, she did really, really wonderful work. And one day I'm going to pay for a statue or something, I think. Do you think do you think Becky wants a statue of herself though? I don't I know I don't, she doesn't. I know she doesn't, but that's the kind of thing I would do and not tell her. So yeah. It has to be modern. I feel like it would be weird to have an actual exact statue of a of a person that you know. I don't Well, maybe I'll just endow it so it can be done after we pass or something. Oh, like there you go. You could do that. Or you could it could be the Becky hand set. You could endow a scholarship, a science scholarship. Right. There right. You go. Right. So so Scott, so to so to summarize, we talked about the business and the business expansion distributorship and your advice there, packaging the mystique and growing from a regional tasting room before you dip your toe into bigger distribution, which sure. I expect to come out roaring. And then today we also talked about this whole thing with hand sanitizer. And I didn't know, by the way, that that's why the hand sanitizer at Home Depot and Costco smelled so bad because right. you couldn't, I, my son would be like, oh, this smells awful. You know, right. <laughs> Nobody wanted to put it on because it smelled, you know, not great. It smelled like um, fuel. Yeah. Yeah, it smelled like fuel. But it's saving lives. It's keeping you clean. Right. Uh, so we missed that lavender stuff. But you solved the mystery for me. And so uh, I'll say at the end of this podcast now as well, thank you and Becky for that. You not only, I mean, I'm just saying as a nation, you you 300 distilleries that you were able to get this formula to and you saved them afterwards. You'd be like, Hey Scott and Becky, uh, we just got a bill, so <laughs> right, here's the bill. <laughs> here's a bill we got, and right. you guys that too. So fantastic work! That's really exciting, and what a great story. Um, so we'll put this we'll put this up on the Black Letter YouTube channel. People watch. Scott, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Are you guys open? Can I come in and do a cocktail flight? Is that yeah. is that you back sure to? Can. We're, okay. we're running at, at 50% capacity, so you're definitely free to come on in. All right. I'll be by. 
Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. And thank you, listeners, viewers. Download us wherever you get your podcasts from the iTunes Store or Google Play. And we'll see you next time on the Black Letter Podcast. Thanks. That's all for today's episode of Black Letter. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time when we talk about more Black Letter issues in creative ways. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Google Play so you never miss an episode. And to catch us on video, check out our website at blackletterstudios.com.